With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 55th episode of my show. I like to use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also try to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help you to improve information security and to better protect privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, PodToppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And of course, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website, and then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. You know, I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in to listen. I welcome all of you in the 61 or 62 countries now that are shown in my listeners report. And I hope that you will let me know what you think of my shows and, you know, give me suggestions for upcoming topics. I'm thinking about doing some shows on 5G security and privacy issues. And I want to do some more shows on DNA privacy. I had a great guest last year discussing DNA privacy on my June 5th show. And I'm continuing with more shows on artificial intelligence, student and teacher privacy, and more. I'm also considering a show on body area networks as far as they impact security and privacy. So let me know what you think of that as well. Thank you to all my listeners. I truly do appreciate you. I wanted to let you know that I'm teaching a one-day on-site class as part of the Secure World Expo in the greater Kansas City area in the Overland Park, Kansas Convention Center on Tuesday, May 7th. And my class is Privacy Impact Assessments and Privacy Frameworks, Effective Tools to Identify and Mitigate Security and Privacy Risks. Now, in this class, I'm going to provide an overview of privacy frameworks and also techniques to support a privacy program. And then I'm also going to perform, uh, help you to understand how to perform a privacy impact assessment or PIA. And that will include doing the DPIAs that's necessary under European Union's GDPR regulation. And I'm going to have attendees go through some case study exercises. I'm a member of the NIST Privacy Framework core team, and I'm going to provide some information about that as well. And then I will also give the keynote there on I'll also give the keynote there on the first day of the Secure World Expo on May 8th. So for more information, see the secureworldexpo.com site or just drop me a line. And of course, if any of you are interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please also get in touch. Uh, and please keep your feedback and questions coming in. My March Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of February. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please go ahead and sign up for them. I've been providing them for free since 2007, and it's my effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues. And I also want to provide them as a free awareness publications that organizations can use to send to their employees. Now, you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com 
and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now, I want to get to my tip for this week. You know, I know it's been three weeks or so since uh, Valentine's Day, but I just read a U.S. Federal Trade Commission or FTC report that found that in 2018, more than 1,000 people were tricked into sending money to an online person that they thought was their newly found romantic partner. And a lot of them were found during the Valentine's Day period, interestingly enough, but not surprisingly. And collectively, these folks lost more than $143 million. So I want to remind you, there are a lot of scammers out there, and they're trying to get people to fall for their fake profiles online. And a lot of times, they created them using other people's photos, and many times they actually are also using their actual work life experiences of those other people. Now, I've written about this many times in my monthly tips messages, including the ones that I've written about are about the, the scammers that I've gotten myself on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter over the years. The phony profiles typically depict, you know, really good-looking people and often military officers. The FTC reports that on average, the targets of these online romance scams reported a median loss of $2,600 each, which is higher than any other type of consumer fraud. Now, listen to this. The median jumped to $10,000 per person for the victims who were over age 70. And there are other specific extreme cases. For example, there was a woman who met a man online who, you know, told her he was a certain person, and she ended up wiring him because she thought this was her soulmate and love of her life. She sent him $50,000 on eight separate occasions. Now, they never met in person, but he told her he needed funding to ensure that a business deal that he was working on succeeded. So think about it. She lost $400,000 to this online scammer who had convinced her that, you know, he was the love of her life. And then he pocketed the money and disappeared. And he wasn't, who knows who it was. <laughs> it might not have even been, you know, uh, a man. It could have been a, a group of people that were scamming her. So here's one of the many tips I could give you about this. Um, when you get, or your relatives, because, you know, as I mentioned, those over 70 are really huge targets. If you or any of your friends get a, a request from someone that seems suspicious, do a reverse image search using the photo that they sent you or that's associated with their social media account. Now, you can do this on image.google.com, and there are other sites that do these reverse photo searches too. Oftentimes, you'll find the photo, and you will also often see that it belongs to someone else entirely with a different name in a completely different situation than what the scammer is telling you or your family member. Now, on to our show topic. So, I want you to think about something here first. You know, maintaining a website is not the same as engineering, coding, and then maintaining a software application and then making changes within the software application code. Now, after my first show in this series that this show is a part of on application software engineering with my initial focus on change control management, I got a couple of of messages from two different folks and they were sending me their thoughts about the show and they were both arguing well let me let me go back and say this more nicely because I do hope that both of you are listening today and I do want to keep you listening um, but uh, they were both trying to make the case that 
application software change controls processes were not necessary. So one of them said that he built websites and that they displayed information and occasionally collected information from forms on some of the pages. And he said that, you know, I that he never uses any type of change control processes and that his sites had never crashed and they had never experienced any problems whatsoever. Well, he also indicated that he used a website builder and maintenance service. So two points here. One, if he checks with the website builder and maintenance service, he may very well find that they are actually doing the change controls of how the sites work for him. And two, you know, maintaining a website that shows images and collects a few forms, such as what he described, is really quite different from designing and coding a full application software package that does many types of processing using a variety of algorithms and has many different interfaces to other programs and so on. So the other person, the other person told me that his argument was related to a brief discussion I had with Dr. Dan Shoemaker during that first show on change controls, and it had to do with applications changes testing. So the person sending me this message contended that you only need to test for the intended outcomes themselves, because if, he argued, you had engineered your application correctly, you would not have any other impacts anywhere else, even with the most complex type of application software. So, hmm, well, that seems logical, doesn't it? But, you know, I've actually seen through my work from the beginning of my career doing a lot of applications, engineering, and coding, and up through the years while helping my clients throughout the past couple of decades, how insufficient testing, not considering beyond the scope of the intended change itself, actually can have negative impacts, even within what is a well-engineered application. Just testing to see if your intended outcome from your change is what happens is really not sufficient as far as testing goes. As I also discussed with uh, Dr. Jamie Kano back in one of my January shows of this year. Today, I read in my Channel Pro magazine, and it's a magazine for IT services providers, I read another compelling reason for pop, uh, proper testing and change controls. So here is a great quote from within it. It said, nothing is worse than getting a call from a client that you rolled out your new service to to hear that now their legacy application that they'd been using and and depend upon is being killed on every computer and it's being quarantined after they've used your new system changes. So why? You know, it wasn't well tested in a separate environment where this problem could have been discovered before being put into production. That's a very likely possibility. And you know what? Today, I'm discussing change controls and related issues again with a longtime good friend who is also a brilliant IT software engineering and cybersecurity guru. Today, I am happy to welcome to the show Dr. Mish Kabe, who began programming in 1965. Mish joined a compiler team for a new 4GL and RDBMS in 1978 and then was hired by Hewlett-Packard Canada in 1980 as an operating systems and database performance specialist. Misha was a member of the committees defining the common body of knowledge 
for the Certified Information System Security Professional, or CISSP, designation in the mid-1990s. And I know a lot of you out there listening know what the CISSP certification is, and I anticipate a lot of you have that certification. Since 1986, Mish has published over 2,000 articles in operations management and security. He's written a college textbook on enterprise security published by McGraw-Hill in 1996. And Misha served as technical editor of the fourth, fifth, and sixth editions of the Computer Security Handbook published by Wiley. And it's a great handbook. I encourage all of you to check it out. Mish has been an invited lecturer at the United States War College, the Pentagon, NATO headquarters in Brussels, and at NATO counterintelligence training in Germany. Mish was inducted into the ISSA Hall of Fame in December 2004. Mish created the Bachelor of Science and Masters of Science programs in information assurance at Norwich University in 2002, and he served as director of the MSIA until 2009. Mish returned to full-time undergraduate teaching in 2009. I could go on and on, but... Now I want to say, Mish, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you, Rebecca, but I'm afraid my head is swelling to the point that I'm not sure I can hold it up on my neck. (laughs) Well, you've done, you've accomplished so much. You've always been such a a great role model, and that's why I wanted to talk you about, you know, this important topic of change controls, because I know that this is something that you've worked with so much. I've heard you talk about it over the years. So I'm wondering, you know, for the non-IT listener, you know, why should they care about whether or not the SaaS business they use or their software packages that they purchase and use or their apps or the social media sites and all those other things that run on software, why should they care whether or not all of those different vendors of those products follow strong and effective software change controls? Because we normally buy or or build software for a good business reason. It's part of our operations. We depend on these systems. If the systems produce the wrong results or if they crash, we can be in serious trouble. I actually looked up a statistic uh, to, to help answer this question. Mm-hmm. Did you know that Amazon online takes 6,000 orders per minute? Wow. <laughs> I, I was flabbergasted. 6,000 orders per minute. And I calculated how much money that brings in per minute. Oh. It's roughly $700,000 per minute for a total of about a billion dollars a day in 24-hour operations, because, of course, it's worldwide. Can you imagine what would happen if some software engineering turned out to be screwed up and it stopped Amazon's order-taking? <laughs> or if it sent you 43 tractor trailers when you ordered 43 teacups. <laughs> oh, my, yes. Well, that, I, I love those stats. I mean, that's powerful. Yeah. That really drives it home yeah. why you want to make sure they're going to change. And not only that, not only the mistakes, but can you imagine how many customers they'd probably lose after mistakes like that? Absolutely. Well, when did you first start working with software change controls because you've been doing so much in IT, but I know all of it hasn't been software change controls. When when did That's you right. get a start in that? I was hired in 1979 by a company writing a compiler and uh, for a relational database management fourth generation language. Um, and uh, it was for a major customer, a, a very large uh, manufacturing firm. They needed a statistician who could program, and uh, one of my friends from graduate school called me up one day and said, Hey, Mish, uh, we need you. <laughs> and so I went out to uh, 
company and I interviewed, and um, they put me in charge not only of writing that portion of the compiler, so I, I actually defined, I don't know if you remember that uh, we use what's called Bacchus Nower notation to define syntax, and then we can uh, write the, uh, the uh, parser portion of the uh, compiler, generate the object code, and then we go ahead and, and produce results and test, so on. And um, I remember that my software assurance testing had somewhere on the order of, I think it was something like 2,000 commands, mm. and it generated 50,000 lines of object code <laughs> for, for the compi- from the compiler. Oh, my gosh. Um, the, boss, the boss of the company realizing that I have obsessive-compulsive tendencies, which are <laughs> absolutely perfect for programmers and software control and statisticians, put me in charge of software quality assurance, or as we always call it, SQA, and also uh, documentation because I'm good at writing and editing and stuff. So that's, after, after helping to create the software, I helped to ensure that it was running properly. And uh, that, that, that's where my first practical contact was with uh, uh, operational uh, change control. Well, so it sounds like you pretty much created the way in which um, the change control should be done. So what kind of change control practices then, you know, at a, at a high level, or I guess so all of our different levels of listeners can kind of understand what what types of practices did you do in that environment then was it a lot of yeah. trial and error or did you make it yeah. up or were you no given no not at all this is well established um, by by 1979 where people have been programming long enough was a, a clear methodology for software quality assurance and, and testing. Change control is an element of SQA, of software quality assurance. Change control refers specifically to how the user community should test changes to their production software if it's supplied from outside. Um, it, it's, it really is simply a version of software quality assurance. We don't normally think of separating change control from SQA. If we're writing the software for ourselves, it's just a natural part of what we do whenever we modify the source code. But a user who licenses or buys software from another firm needs to apply independent testing in their environment with their data and their people to ensure that the changes have not altered the output or the input characteristics of the software. In other words, that we're, we're still able to use what we've learned how to do, that it still works, and that there are no radical changes that, that would alarm us. I'm not even talking about mistakes here. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about ensuring that we can integrate a new version of somebody else's software into what possibly thousands of our employees are used to working with. Um, so to, to go back to the question of fundamentals, we can refer to the principles of software quality assurance and testing as an inherent part of our change control. The difference is that the change control run by the users focuses almost exclusively on their normal operations, possibly with some exceptions that they've run into, because you want to make sure that exception handling is running smoothly. Mm-hmm. In contrast, the general principles, and by the way, uh, remember you mentioned the computer security handbook. I was personally responsible for insisting on incorporating chapters on software quality assurance and software testing into the security handbook because, in my view, those techniques are essential for effective software um, security. Some of the principles, well, vary at a high level. Um, A general operational principle right from the the very top of our list is Thou shalt test everything that used to work. That's called regression testing. It means 
it doesn't matter what you change, you absolutely have to go through the entire suite of testing to be sure that there are no anomalies. I would like to address the comment the comment you quoted from one mm-hmm. of your listeners about not bothering to test everything because the software is perfect. Well, mm-hmm. if the software were perfect, we wouldn't need software quality assurance. So that's there's nothing more to be said about that, <laughs> if. But the mm-hmm. reality is that software can be complex enough that small changes may have anomalous effects if they've never come up before and nobody ever noticed. And that's yeah. why we do regression testing. That's the top level. As for some of the practical guidelines, I don't think we'll go into a lot of detail. I'll just give you a few examples of uh, uh, tools and techniques. We ought to, for example, verify handling below, at, and above any limitations that have been programmed into the system. Let's suppose that our product codes run from 20 to 80. Hey Mish, can I just I don't yeah. want to I don't mean to interrupt you but you know what we've oh, got okay. we've got to have a break here. <laughs> oh sure. So, That's fine. So what so we're going to break and listeners you need to come back uh, and listen in because Mish is going to give us a really great example of what he's been talking about here. So right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Dr. Mish Kabe about application software change controls. I'm your host, Rebecca Harrell, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show at Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com and also through PrivacyGuidance.com, my website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Mish Kabe about the importance of systems applications and change control. So before the break, we had started getting into the different types of change control practices, and Mish had gone over regression testing as the first major practice. So Mish, can you maybe give us a recap of the second test, and then you were starting to give us an example when we had to go to break. 
Sure. Um, in brief, uh, we just uh, uh, we just introduced the the principles of SQA, software quality assurance, by saying, mm-hmm. look, uh, regression testing is essential. Test everything that used to work, and try mm-hmm. and and make sure that uh, you don't just skimp over it because you've changed a small portion of the code. Mm-hmm. Another principle that is psychological is your goal is to break the software. I tell my students this all the time. Your goal is not to show that it works. The goal of software quality assurance is to do everything in our power as testers to break the code. Because unless we try very hard, we may not catch subtle or rare errors. So very important, uh, when an SQA team finds errors, they are praised and thanked so that we can fix the errors. The goal is not to say, oh, well, I did a few tests and it seems to be okay, so I guess it's fine. That's not acceptable. So that's a mm-hmm. psychological issue. Um, as for technical details, there's so much I can't, I don't think we should go into a huge amount of detail. Let me just give you some examples. I am yeah. actually looking at our chapter, uh, the chapter on um, uh, software quality assurance, and um, we have we have some best practices like quote use local variables, not global variables, when storing sensitive data that should be used only within a specific routine. And why do we do that? So that the data can disappear or be reinitialized by the program code in RAM, usually, not leaving traces that can be scavenged by an attacker or a dishonest employee. That's just one example. I mean, there's so many different issues. Um, Yeah. Yep, go ahead. And I want to, for our listeners' sake, when you reference a local variable and not a global variable, for our listeners, what do you mean about that? What's the difference between a local variable and a global variable? In programming, we have a choice on how we declare or describe areas, usually of RAM, of random access memory, that's usually what we're talking about, that will store information for use in any given procedure or routine piece of code. Mm -hmm. And if we define a global variable, the contents of that area of memory are specifically you, I guess you say ordered or defined, to be kept in place throughout the execution of the program, not just a little routine that used mm. it lately, but for access later. A local variable is defined for a specific piece of code when it initiates, and it can be deleted or destroyed or wiped out, erased, at the end of that little procedure, and it won't be transferred to any other uh, procedure. So those are some very, that's just some fundamentals of Mm -hmm. how a program is executed using um, random access memory, main memory. Great. That was just one example. Yes. Uh, I'd like to give you a very important principle that isn't so technical. It's called using a test coverage monitor. And again, this is something I emphasize to my programming and systems engineering students. It is not acceptable, in my view, and that of professionals, simply to run a bunch of tests and say, okay, I guess that's enough. No. (laughs) What we need is software that keeps track of how often every single instruction in our compiled program, and we can translate that into the source Uh, a code that is readable by people, and Mm -hmm. we want to know when and how often every single piece of code that we generated has been executed. Why? Because we can draw a graph, and it'll show a whole bunch of, you know, let's think of a rectangle graph, you know, horizontal bar graph, and everything is, oh, it's been used 43,000 times, and this one's been used, this piece of code has been used 2,000 times, and then suddenly you come to a piece of code that is blank. It Mm. has never been executed in the tests that we ran. Not cool, folks. (laughs) Either our testing is inadequate and we forgot, 
Or it might be dead code, that is, code that is logically impossible to execute. I'll give you a trivial example. I'll make something up. Imagine that somebody coded, if this is true, you know, execute part A. If it's Mm -hmm. false, execute part C. No, nowhere in that code does it say anything about executing part D, and we might end up with dead code. That's not an immediate danger, but the dead code could be used to install malware. Somebody could store a, uh, a Trojan in, uh, or a virus in our code, and we might not even know until they launch execution of that hidden, unused part of the code. So that's just one example of a, of a, a kind of generic, as opposed to delving into all of the uh, for for perhaps non-programmers might find uh, confusing. Oh, so that's a great example. And if, if you don't mind, I, it reminds me of when I started early in my career as a systems engineer, that dead code. It seems like that's where a lot of backdoors are often located mm-hmm. Too, because a lot of the the programmers yeah. I worked with, um, and some of them had been longtime programmers when I started. You know, they would put in code to give themselves access um, to do testing, and then they just left it there after they put it into production, even though it wasn't part of the the application processing. And that always seemed very, very negligent to me. In Excel ninety seven, twenty years mm-hmm. ago now. Oh, boy. <laughs> Excel 97 had what's called an Easter egg. I know you know what that is. It yes. means undocumented code. The Easter egg would respond to going to X97, I think it was X97, uh, I forget, X97 and, and Y97 or something like that. Uh-huh. If you went to that uh, Excel spreadsheet, it would you take over your screen, and you see this relatively crude at the time. It was 20 years ago. Relatively crude landscape that looked like something from a planet. You mm-hmm. fly, you perspective over. This is the four arrow keys board. If you flew long enough, you might come up with um, a CRT representation. On we're scrolling the names of the developed team. You can be sure... That code was never tested in the software of the insurance, which means it in really dangerous errors on that code. Oh, yes. That's a perfect example. And I'm, yeah. I need to go look that up, too. <laughs> yeah. See how it yeah. looks you in look up real the, life. Uh, XL 97 Flight Simulator Easter Egg. Ah, And for wonderful. our listeners, Easter Egg means a, a, a kind of a surprise piece of code. Yes, that's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? Instead of, yeah. you know, more derogatory firms, <laughs> terms. Well, <laughs> well uh, you know, I want to get into, and, and our, you know, I enjoy talking about you with you about all these things so much, but I do want to get into some, you know, I'm looking at the clock here, and yeah. we've been talking about testing, uh, but I want to kind of, look at some of the testing that you did specifically because I don't want the show to end before we get to that point. So you ran software testing for new versions of operating systems back in the the 1980s when uh, you were director of your major computer service bureau in Montreal. So what kind of operating systems, you know, and, and as I'm asking you this, what I'm thinking is I've had people also come back and say to me, well, you needed to do that testing on those types of mainframes. We don't need to do that anymore because we're not using the same systems. But, you know, as kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we go forward with this because, you know, what types of operating systems were you testing at that time? And maybe are they any different in, you know, conceptually with regard to things that could go wrong compared to today's systems? No. <laughs> they wouldn't be. There is no fundamental difference between the operating systems of 1980s, where I was working uh, as director of technical services, and the systems that we're running today. I don't care what the hardware is. I don't even care what the software is. The issue is 
that we cannot afford putting our users into trouble. That's mm-hmm. really the simple-minded description. We can't afford a production system giving wrong information or going down in yes. a denial of service. So you asked about what what kind of systems. It happens that I was responsible for HP 3000 computers. And um, back then, uh, they were running the MPE, Multiprogramming Executive Software. I actually calculated how much those uh, systems cost in today's dollars, you know, multiplying by five. Yes. We're talking about five to ten million dollars for each of three large refrigerator-sized computers with banks and banks of disk drives. The irony, of course, in today's world is that the <laughs> HP 7933 disk drives, which looked like small washing machines, and we had about 20 of them, they mm-hmm. each cost roughly $125,000 in wow. today's money. And are we ready for this? They stored, and I asked my students what they think they stored, and they always talk about terabytes. They stored 404 megabytes each. <laughs> 404 megabytes. Oh, my That's gosh. Right. 404 <laughs> megabytes. Anyway, so what did we do? Uh, how, did we, uh, how did we test the versions of the software or patches when we had 28 companies and 1,000 live terminals? in 28 companies, and we simply could not afford to have any problems. We were under contract. Um, I tell my students, you better think about the QOS, the quality of service, defined in your SLA, your service level agreement, because when we have services that we're selling, we often have strict requirements on how the system is supposed to perform. So what we would do is we would uh, plan to do our testing on a weekend because our customers did not have uh, access or did not use our systems for production on weekends. So starting in the afternoon, the late afternoon of Friday, we would... Take, we would shut down our system access, and we would take a double full backup. Why double? We absolutely wanted to be sure that there could not be any loss of data if something went wrong for, with one of the backups in a given place. The likelihood that the same error would occur in two independent backups was negligible. So having completed the two full backups, we would then switch packs on our disk drives. That means we would actually take spare disk drives that had the operating environment on them, and we would switch out the production packs from our disk drives and put in the test packs. Now, at that point, we would go through the software update processes, whether it was the operating system or a patch or version uh, change, we would get that running on our now test system, totally separate from the production data. And that's an important point. You Mm -hmm. do not run tests on a production system. And I'm sure we'll want to talk about that a little more later. Having loaded up the test system, we would then perform tests that night from an operations perspective, see that everything we did worked, and then the next morning, Saturday morning, we would have two or three users from each of the 28 companies that had agreed to come in to test their own software, the software that had been written for them or the software that they had written themselves, mm-hmm. and they would uh, do their best to check the uh, validity of the new version of the operating environment for their software. Then, if we got the all clear, no problems had been reported, despite everything we could do to make the system break, at that point, we would put the production packs back in, we would load the new version or the patches, And we would go live, and then we would monitor very carefully. Indeed, uh, on the Monday that followed the installation, we were on 
call uh, even more than usual. We were calling around and checking and saying, how are things going? Have you noticed anything unusual? Are there any changes? That is a change control process in practice. Well, I love that example. And, you know, what you describe is so important for those folks to, uh, our listeners, to understand about, you know, trying to break it, I think is is just, it's so important to understand. But when I've had so many organizations tell me to what you described as the very end of change control, they're like, oh, well, we don't need change control because we just, you know, we have a backup. So we'll, if something goes wrong, we'll just restore the backup. And as you described, you, you need the backups, but that's not your change control. That's just a very one part of it. Yes. So it's a I think safety net. The safety net. And, and so a safety net does not replace the change control process itself. I mean, it's it's there for a reason, but it's not the only thing that you need to do. So I think that's important for especially those businesses listening who currently think that they don't need change control if they have backups that they're using. So the uh, it is true that we should have a, a transaction logging system uh, especially for databases that would allow us to recover as much as possible should there be a major failure. But that's, but that's not the same as having tested the system to ensure that we won't have to go down when we lock the databases, keep all the users off them for an hour and a half, and fix the problems that we shouldn't have had. Those downtime hours can be expensive, as we were talking mm-hmm. about in discussing the Amazon system. Yes, yes. Well, and you mentioned about not using live production data, and this is something for testing. And this is something I've run across so many times throughout my career. But yes, please, you had mentioned the importance of of why you should not use live production data for testing. Let's let's hit that now. I want to make sure we cover that. Uh, before we run out of time? Sure. There there are a number of important reasons. One of them is that we don't want to damage anything that we depend upon. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned earlier that even a small error, such as deleting records by mistake or altering records by mistake, could cause a significant amount of time to repair the damage, and that's not acceptable. So rather than risking the production data, we should have a copy of the production data on a separate testing environment, and we need to respect laws about confidentiality Mm -hmm. of the data such as, as you well know, of course, a privacy professor, you can reel them mm-hmm. off, HIPAA, FERPA, uh, GLBA, Gramm-Leach-Bliley, uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley, the European uh, data protection uh, rules that have recently changed with the GDPR. These are yep. legal obligations to protect information against unauthorized access, and there is no way that the operations team have any legal right to access medical data in a database that stores medical information. It's against the law. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we need to have measures in place that will extract data from production databases, transform them to be not traceable to the legitimate owners or data subjects, and only use the protected data that has been anonymized or pseudonymized so that nobody's data is at risk. Yes. Well, so those are, those are practical issues about why we don't use the production data. We can use modified copies of the production data. And indeed, we must take into account volume because some people test their software 
that is meant to run with 43 million records, and they'll test it on 43,000. What if there's a performance problem? So that's yet another example of where a proper copy of the anonymized data stored on a separate system becomes enormously useful. There's something I wanted to mention to the listeners that might interest them about testing. All Mm -hmm. of the testing has to be automated because the volume of tests must be adequate for our purposes of identifying errors. Back, even back in the 19... I worked at HP. We test by link test software by linking two HP 3000s together, I.O. port to I.O. port. And one of the systems was called the system under test, and it would be challenged by automated programs running on the test system that would feed instructions into the system under test at high speed and high volume. That's serious quality control testing. Oh, yes. Well, there's so much more that I want to get to, but we're actually running up on the end of our hour already. I want to have you back sometime so we can continue this because I think it's so important and you've made so many points uh, on just a few of the topics that I was planning to discuss with you. But today I've been speaking with Dr. Mish Kabay about the importance of systems and applications change controls. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Please let me know. And do you have a topic to suggest I cover or a guest to suggest? Or do you have any other type of suggestions at all? Just let me know and get in touch with me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And certainly you can find my recordings on all those different apps that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, as well as going to the voiceamerica.com business channel website. Get in touch with me if you need any help with information security or privacy. And I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those that you do business with and do work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.